Hello and welcome to Can I Get a Picture? I'm your host, Soul Lovemore. Join me as I get to pick the brains of some extraordinary people hearing their struggles and successes that have shaped who they are today. Today we're talking to Anthony Robinson, a professional footballer who plays for Wigan Athletic and the United States national team as a left-back. He was born in Milton Keynes, England and gained US citizenship through his family. Anthony's an incredible young footballer who has already attracted interest from the likes of AC Milan and other big clubs across Europe. He is also a very bright young man with a great story to tell. I hope you enjoy our conversation where we talked about battling injury, the dream move, his heart problem, and how he has overcome all the challenges. Thank you, Anthony, for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. Obviously, as I said, it's a pleasure to have you and looking forward to hearing more about your journey. I did some interesting uh, interesting research. I learned a lot about you that I didn't know. So I'm glad to, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what you've got to say. Let's start with uh, early life, where you were born and raised. Tell me a bit about that. Right, uh, thanks for having me on as well, by the way. Appreciate it. Um, so I was born in uh, Milton Keynes and grew up there for um, four years and then moved over to Liverpool, which is where my mum's from. And I had a brief spell. Like, I moved back for a year to Milton Keynes, but other than that, I've lived in Liverpool my whole life in the south of Liverpool. So yeah, that's pretty much my background of growing up and stuff. I'm basically a Liverpool lad. That obviously don't know too much of Milton Keynes from moving at young age, but yeah, that's me. Your dad's American, right? So did you spend any time in, in New York? So right, a little chance to clarify here. So my dad is actually English and he's just an American citizen. He moved there when he was when he was young for like 10 years. So that's how he got his citizenship and I got my citizenship through him. He got it from his mum as well. So I've obviously had holidays and stuff, but I never like spent time living out there. Oh, fair enough. I was going to ask you to to give me your your best New York accent, but I'll, I'll let you off. Since... Nah, no, yeah, no chance. <laughs> Didn't go up around then. <laughs> so, how did you um? How did you find school? I enjoyed school, like academic wise. I, I everyone, all the children in my family, are quite smart. Luckily, so it was always sort of everyone one up in each other as we as we got on. I um like left primary school like with good grades went to secondary school ended up getting really good GCSEs and even through the football uh still managed to do A levels and came out with two A levels and an AS level so uh, education was like massive to my family yeah so I, I enjoyed school especially like my field well field sounds like a professional my like favorite subject was maths like I was really I had a thing for it. Was football your only hobby, you would say, growing up, or were there other, other sports you tried before football became the sport? Uh, well, football was definitely the first. Uh, pretty much ever since I could walk, I was kicking a football around the house. And growing up, even to this day, like everyone said, I've always just had a lot of energy. So anything to do around me, I've always done. I went to a sports college so I could like try as many sports as I could. So when I was growing up, I was into rugby, played a bit of basketball, loved badminton table tennis trampoline and I did everything but football was like always the main thing that I was interested in and like growing up since probably like the age of four when I started playing football teams that's when I wanted to be a footballer and you know you mentioned education being a big part of your family would you say that was something that was instilled in you guys from a young age my mum and dad always said to me like you always need a backup plan in life you can't just rely on hoping that football's going to work out one injury and you could be done so you need to make sure you've got a good education behind you. Um, and they just, like my parents didn't didn't like wasting potential as well. So, you know, if we had like a parents evening at school and you're getting bad reports and things, then of course they're going to be annoyed at you because they knew how clever we all were as kids, especially like me and my younger sister are the two, the two bright sparks. She's a lot cleverer than me though. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's, yeah, that's probably the thing, just laziness and wasting what, opportunities you have like we were lucky growing up so yeah so would you say your parents were the biggest in your biggest influences growing up then they're definitely my biggest influence they're, they're like what has got me to the point where i am now obviously i've had to sacrifice and work hard but i'm pretty much just a reflection of how they were raising us all and all all the kids are we've all all turned out really well uh thankfully because of them like all the stuff they've sacrificed for us to make sure that we had the best upbringing we could so it's definitely, I just think I'm a reflection of their upbringing on me. When would you say, did you start taking football seriously or when did you know like football was going to be your long-term career? You were 
Everton from the age of 11. So, yeah, tell me a bit about that. Uh, it was a, it's an interesting one, that. So when I first signed for Everton, it was around the time where all the youngsters were getting their breaks. Like, you'd go into the academy and you'd see all the people who've made their debuts at, like, 16 years old, 17 years old, your James Bourne, your Jose Baxter's. So when I, when I was, like, the 13, 14, and I thought I was good at football, I was like, I'm going to be the youngest kid to play for Everton here. And then it quickly dawned on me that I wasn't one of the favourite players. Um, I wasn't. I didn't play much through the academy because, you know, they have the favourites and there's lads who they wanted to play instead of us. So when I got to, say, like 15, I didn't know what was going to happen career-wise. I didn't even... I was just, like, thinking of training, playing in school, really. And then when I got given my scholarship, that was when it became, like, a job. That was how I earned my money. So... It was um, there was a bit more to aspire towards, but even through scholarship, I had a lot of injuries. wasn't one of the favourite players again, so didn't play much. So I didn't quite have the aspirations of, ah, oh, this is going to be my long term career. I wanted it to be, but I didn't see it as like a realistic thing until I came back from a knee injury and you know performed really well and started getting noticed by the first team coach and stuff. And that's when it sort of kicked in. Uh, that I actually had a chance of making it a career. So let's put everything into it. And you spoke about uh, school and football there. How did you juggle the two? How did you find the balance to make sure that you could, you know, perform both at school and on the pitch? I honestly don't know. <laughs> we we had that much, dedicated that much time to both, especially with Everton. They started with our age group um, and the age groups around, like taking us out of school so that we could do more training. Um, so there was all, less time in school um we were training we could like say on a thursday we'd be taken out of school at 12 o'clock go train have lunch do some uh homework in between sessions and then go train again and we'd be getting home at like 8 p.m and most nights it was like late nights getting home and stuff so it was hard but it me it was pretty just my mum and dad telling me off if i didn't do my homework and stuff that got me through it i'd say and the football was hard growing up through school because that was when I started getting like growing pains and things and having a lot of like little niggles that were affecting me so it's hard keep keeping your head at times like that really yeah and you mentioned your injury as well in the under 18s did this affect your confidence at all how how have you found dealing with injuries thus far in your in your football career definitely one of the toughest aspects of things to deal with when it comes to football that's um one of the things that people who aren't in football can't really appreciate because it's not just your injury it's thinking what's going to happen when I come back from injury do I still have a space am I gonna am I still gonna be as good as I was before the injury when it comes to serious ones so my first injury was um, my knee when I like started actually playing for the eight under 18s um, and I was out for three months with that but this is this is when I didn't have a like a pro contract sort of Everton or anything so I was I didn't know for all I knew that injury I was going to come back and not be as good and I was done but all I could do was work as hard as I could, trust the physios to get me back and do everything in my power to make sure when I come back, I give myself every chance. And thankfully, when I came back that year, I got ended up getting player of the year for the under-18s and uh, getting a pro contract. As a young professional as well, coming through, when you were at Everton, is there, has there ever been a time in your career where you feel a bit frustrated? Because I assume you're in a big squad, you're all young players and everyone's kind of vying to get that first team break and that first team chance. Do, do you ever get frustrated to see, let's say, another player in your team get the call up and get the break? And you're thinking, hang on a minute, I've been working my socks off here. How, you know, how's this not working out for me? Is that ever something that's ever crossed your mind? Uh, there's definitely a bit of that. That's another frustration that comes with football when you're doing everything you can and you see someone else playing in your spot where you think you should. And for me, that frustration was through another injury. So after my first knee injury, I came back. I was training with the first team. This is when I was 17. I've made my first like pre-season debut um, in a friendly for the first team. Um, this was under Martinez. So I thought, right, I've got a chance here. But in that pre-season friendly, I ended up getting injured again. So when the season started, um, Baines got injured. Uh, Brendan Galloway got injured. And I happened to be injured. And... You know, that's frustrating because that could have been my chance to have a go at first team football at that age. Um, but then I ended up being out injured for nine months. So it was, you know, they're, they're tough times when you think that could be me playing if it only wasn't for this injury that I couldn't have prevented. And who would you say you based your game on 
as you were approaching, obviously, the first team in, in professional football in the top flight, who's that? who were the players you looked at and thought, yeah, that's kind of where I want to go with my career? Uh, there's a lot. So I've, I, I'm quite an, like an attacking fullback. So when I was, I only got moved to fullback when I was 15 because we had an injury. So I just had to fill in. But I kind of enjoyed playing there because I could still attack and I enjoyed defending as well. So people used to like say I play a bit like, say, Ashley Cole and things like that. Obviously not as good as them, but that sort of style. I used to admire um, Kieran Gibbs when he was at Arsenal as well. Um, Bainesy was a good role model there and to uh, look up to. And then uh, players in foreign leagues like Marcelo, Alaba, there's loads of world-class left-backs that you just see it was so good at the game and so good at attacking. And that's what kind of gave me a love for the position, really. You became a regular in the Everton Under-23 squad and you were doing really well there. But you didn't seem to get many uh first team opportunities instead you went out on loan how did you how did you take that at the time when you obviously you're in you're in the team you're playing really well but then you have to end up going out on loan to get some to get minutes uh it's a that's a tricky one as well there's obvious there's a massive massive jump from 23s football to first team football and you don't realize it until you actually get thrown into it what the jump is and there's some players who need a loan there's some players you can just throw them in and they'll do good at any level that they actually get a chance at. But that was kind of, there's lads around us who were going on loan and getting first team football because they knew they weren't going to get in at Everton. And that was sort of the aim for most of us to get a good loan, prove yourself on a first team level and then try. So when I first actually got the opportunity to go on loan, I remember saying, um, there was a few like League One and League Two clubs who wanted me on loan. And I was like going into the 23s manager saying, I'm, these want me on loan. Can I go? I really want it. And he was just like, just hold off. You can you can get a better club than these on loan. Like, if you're going to go, you need to get the right club to develop. And then he ended up saying to me, the bottom wanted me on loan in the championship. And you know, I didn't expect a loan at that level for the to be my like debut in first team football. I think I was 19, turning 20 at the time. Um, and then when I got thrown into that, it was just a you know a relegation fight. It was my first season. So you, I learned very quickly like how different men's football was from 23s, the intensity, like the repercussions of winning and losing games. It means a lot more. So it's actually not that frustrating to be put on loan. It's kind of just as long as you get the right loan or some players might think they're better than they are and think they have to, they should be in the first team straight away. But I was, I've never been like that. I don't think I'm better than I am. I, I just want to like prove myself at whatever level I play at. Yeah, so you said the 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 jump or the gap between the twenty threes and first team football um, is quite big. So what so what would you say are the main differences you picked up on when you made that transition? Probably the pressure of every game. So when you when it comes to like twenty threes football, it's pretty much more you're you're trying to like play your best, trying to perform as best as you can. But it's quite nice. There's not much there's not much pressure on the games. But when you get to like first team games, so like in say in the championship, for instance, like people's careers are on the line. Like your managers got pressure on him if you don't perform. There's lads who say, "Well, me, I was in a relegation scrap. If I'm not playing well, and they end up getting relegated, they're getting the wages cut enough the next year." And everyone feels that there's lads who are fighting to get promoted in the league, whose wages will get doubled if they go up and people trying to get moves and there's just so much different types of pressure and intensity that you don't get in 23s football because it's actually like it's just like real it's like going from your apprenticeship into an actual like real world job where there's actual repercussions it's just so different so moving forward to your international career so 2018 you were offered to play for England under 21s or the USA senior squad you chose the latter obviously to represent the USA Tell me a bit about that decision-making process. How did you how did you make that decision? It was a pretty astonishing moment for me when I actually got called up for the US first team, which is what came first. And when I was younger, I'd already played for the US under-18s, uh, which was like the first time that I'd had any international exposure. I'd never, like I said, like when I was young, I was never like one of the favourites or one of the promising youngsters breaking through. So when I got that opportunity to play with the US international team, that gave me a bit of courage and belief in myself. So the fact that that was what started like my international career and like gave me that confidence, it felt right to go with the US first team and play, you know, international 
first team games and that was an invaluable experience and it's ended up being really well managed to play against some world-class players um, and have some really you know memorable experiences from it as well so I'm glad I made the decision. Do your parents ever give you stick though because obviously as you said you're a proper Englishman through and through so did they ever look at that and go how are you playing for America instead of the, the English national team? <laughs> No, the, the fact they've got a full international in the house, they, they were proud as anything. I remember, literally remember the day I've been asked it so many times when I got the call up and I went, my mum was next door, had a friend, I ran around, told her, and like she was over the moon crying, celebrating, pouring champagne all at the same time. <laughs> it's a really proud moment for our family that like I managed to become a full international, you know what I mean? Yeah, and so fast forward a bit, July 2019, you join... Wigan on a three-year deal tell me a bit about that experience moving to Wigan your debut how did you find that well obviously the season before I'd been on loan at Wigan already I had a pretty a fairly strong season obviously a few international games I ended up playing like, I think 26 games for Wigan like when you cut my injury out and I performed well especially towards the end of the season and when I went back to Everton for pre-season they pretty much made it clear that they they were going to keeper Leighton Baines and they already had Lucas Dinia so that I wasn't realistically going to get a chance to play in the first team that year so they said it's probably best that you go to another team permanently and when Wigan came in it was kind of just a move that felt right I was comfy comfy there I knew all the lads really enjoyed my time there the manager had a lot of faith in me so I knew I was going to get games so for me it was all about going to a club where I know I'm going to play I know I can develop more and that'll catapult, catapult me onto another bigger move. Um, so it was kind of just like the right thing to do for me at the time. Yeah, and I think I can see just from even just reading the reviews and stuff that you've had a big impact at Wigan. You can see how fans, you know, fans are the first to talk about players, good or bad, but they seem to be, you know, they seem to have a lot of love for you in Wigan. So keep doing what you're doing. It's working. Yeah, the fans are great. Let's move forward to AC Milan. Jan 2020 comes, you know, you get AC Milan come in. You know, that's all pretty much wrapped up. You fly over to Milan. Medical's the, the last step of the transfer. Once medical's done, ink gets dry, you know, dream move. But unfortunately for you, the fairy tale didn't, work out how it should have so tell me a bit about what happened at the medical let's go through that yeah so when i like arrived in milan it was a really crazy experience i just woke up from a flight that was i landed at like 10 a.m so i was up at like 6 a.m in manchester uh i leave the airport to go to one of the cars they've got to pick me up there's all cameramen and media teams taking trying to take pictures of me i'm half asleep i don't know where i am it's just i'm just laughing that this is actually a thing that people are doing at me get to um the first hospital that they were doing the test and in my in my head in my wildest dreams i never would have thought that i would have had no regularity in my heart i was just you know getting mri scans on my knees my back just thinking oh please for the love of god don't tell me like something's wrong with my knee or anything like that like an, any injury that could have resulted in the deal falling through and it all seemed fine then I started doing a stress test where an ECG hooked up to my chest. I was doing bike and I had to go for like 15 minutes at a really high intensity. And obviously all the doctors are speaking Italian stuff, so I don't have a clue what they're saying. Um, and then they, they started asking me, is like, have you ever had symptoms of like heart palpitations or anything? And I was like, no, I've never had symptoms of anything. And so they sent me to another hospital to do some more tests. But obviously, I didn't know there was even an issue at this moment in time. And then after all that's done, it's been about four, four or five hours of the day. I get sent over to the Milan headquarters where I'm thinking, right, it's done. I'm going to like sign my deal now. And then they just tell me we physically can't sign you. We won't get a license to play over here because there's been a like defect detected in your heart. So that's just obviously heartbreaking for me at the time. I, I just had to, I remember having to take a minute and go to the toilet and cry my eyes out if I'm being honest because I just couldn't hold it in. It was it was just completely unexpected. If it was if it was something I could have expected, like they said, oh, there's something wrong with your knee. You're gonna have to get it fixed before we can sign you. Then would it would have been understandable. But the fact that it was something that came completely out of left field just hit me. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I can imagine because as you said, it's not something that's, that had ever kind of shown up in your career or you'd never had any medical, you know, medical exams to show this was a condition you had. So obviously AC Milan, you've gone there, hasn't worked out how you thought and you now, you're now in a position where you go, it's not only a chance you've missed out on your football career, but now it's also your health at risk. So what were the next steps you took after AC Milan to kind of deal with the setback? After that, they were, it was, I was actually out in Milan with my dad at the time. So when I came home, we spoke to the doctors and the physios at Wigan and we just said, like, we're not really asked about like moves or anything. It's just about his health now. We need to like get to the bottom of what's wrong with him. So Milan actually paid for the test that they would have ca- had to carry out if I'd have went out there to happen in Liverpool. So I needed like some cardiac screens and things like that um, to get to the bottom of what was wrong with me. And it was a, was a long process. Like they found out I was basically having these ectopic heartbeats, so just inefficient extra heartbeats that uh, over time they were making my heart like decline a little bit. So it was having to work extra hard because it was beating inefficiently. And they just said, you might feel fine now, but long term this could have a serious effect on you. So at the minute we can't let you play games because if we've like now we've caught this, if something was to happen to you on a pitch, it would be really irresponsible on our part. So I had to just like be patient and keep doing the testing. And I found out I was I was supposed to have a procedure in March, um, which would hopefully like eradicate like this defect. But that procedure, I was informed only had I think a seventy percent success rate. So even then, I'd, I'm going into this thinking, right? I'm either I don't know what's going to happen here. I could, for all I know, I'm never going to play football again. And then obviously the lockdown happened, and fast forward to June when they'd rescheduled the operation. And when I went in, they stuck a camera in my groin up to my heart and I ended up just saying, well, I can't see any defect now. It must have like sort of sorted itself out. So you can play now. <laughs> it was just a massive relief. It was like another thing out of left field, but in a good way. So did you have any treatment to kind of aid with the, the condition? Or as you said, it was just right. We think you're good to go again and you can get back on the pitch. So at first when they... But leading up to when I was going to have the operation, they didn't want me to have one. That was like obviously last resort. So at first I was taking beta blockers to see if they could help keep my heart rate down, which would maybe help stop these inefficient beats. But they didn't seem to work. I was on them for a week and it didn't work. I was having ECG monitors that I had to sleep in for a week um, to make sure I was still having these beats. And they said, I think maybe 13% of my heartbeats were inefficient at the time. So that's like a few thousand heartbeats a day that are wrong. And they just said this, right, we're going to have to do this operation. And when it came to doing it in June afterwards, they had an ECG hooked up to me while the operation was supposed to go ahead. And there was no inefficient heartbeats, which was obviously bizarre. They tried provoking my heart with like adrenaline and things like that to see if spiking it could upset my heart. Cause they had to see the, like they had to see the defect in action to operate on it to know where to operate and they couldn't find it so the, for the few days after for like a week and a half after i was i had more mris done on my heart more ecg monitors like to sleep in overnight just to make sure that my heart seemed like it had settled down and we sort of came to the conclusion that it might have been uh, excess caffeine that was causing me to have these inefficient beats so over the lockdown like i didn't really have caffeine much at all and it seems like that's sort of been the factor, like the lifestyle change that's helped me out. So going forward, it seems like it's just going to be more heart testing than I'd normally have. Cut caffeine out as much as I can, and I should be good to go. Oh, that, no, that's good news. I'm glad, as I said, that you're, you know, you're back on the pitch and, and doing what you love. Dealing with the sudden change of not playing. So how have you been using your downtime in lockdown? What have you been doing the, the, the time you weren't playing? So in lockdown, everyone was pretty much in the same boat since like all the football had stopped. So I was just like, well, obviously enjoying my time with my girlfriend at home because there was a lot more time together because she couldn't really do much either. And doing as much fitness stuff as I can just to make sure that if I was going to have the operation, that after I'd had it, I'd be ready to go straight back into football as soon as I recovered from it because I didn't want to have a lot of ground to make up. So um just like a lot of home gym sessions doing a lot of running in my spare time just keep in shape as much as possible 
And it's a good thing I did that, that now I'm back playing and it's, I'm not like too far behind fitness wise. Bearing in mind as well, you're still super, super young. Let's not forget that, that you're still only 22 and, and have achieved so much already and been through so much. What advice would you give to to other athletes, whether it's football or other sports, on dealing with career setbacks? Because you've had quite a few so far and you've always seemed to come come out the other side and come out on top. So what, what would you say is the, the recipe to success that's helped you get to, to where you are today? I'd say the comeback definitely has to be more important to you than the setback is. Whenever I think back, I always think like how lucky I am that I've got the mentality to get over setbacks and come back strong. So if you can just have in mind, I'd say like knowing what your end goal is, I always know I want to achieve as much as I can in football, do as well as I can, um, end up getting as good a career as I can out of it. And when I look back on all the stuff I've overcome, like I don't even realise I've done it until I actually sit back and think of all the injuries I've had, all the times I've not been playing, all the times I've missed out on teams. And I just think you have to sit back and truly think about all the things you've overcome in your life, whether it's little things, big things, because you don't really know what you're capable of until you can, until you actually do it. You don't, you don't really know. When I came back from this now and I'm back playing, it was three months ago that for all I know, I was never going to play football again. And now I'm back to doing what I love and just being appreciative of everything you can do and knowing that, you you can get over pretty much anything if you keep your head at it. I'd say that's probably the most important thing if you want to be successful at anything. Standout moments from your career so far. Give me a few that that stick that live long in your memory. Standout moments. So the first one was probably getting player of the year for the 18s because you have a big award ceremony every year in the academy. And, you know, the same lads win player of the year every year because they're the best ones. They're the ones everyone likes so much. So growing up, I'd been through seven of them. I never, never pictured myself winning one. So I actually, when I finally actually won one, it was just like, right, I've actually d- done something I never thought I could do here. So that's the first, that's the first thing that sticks out in my mind that, like, you know, kicked myself on to think, right, I'm actually all right at this. Second standout, being called up with the first team uh, for preseason when I was, I don't know, sixteen or seventeen when I went to S- Singapore. Um, just before my knee injury, that was uh, just being in and around a first team at such a young age just felt amazing. And having fate from a first team manager that you should be rubbing shoulders with these players, that was another standout moment. Uh, winning the 23s league, that was obviously I'd already, I'd already won the 18s league because I was injured. I didn't play much. So actually playing a part in winning the 23s league and being in the games for the most of it, that Felt pretty special at the time winning that. Then going on loan, one of the best things I've felt was the last day with Bolton when we stayed up. Because uh, it literally came down to the last three minutes of the game that we actually avoided relegation. So we celebrated that like it was a World Cup win. All the fans all the fans invading the pitch. Um, we were straight on the beers walking around the stadium after clapping the fans. It was it was literally like we'd won something and it was it was from just avoiding losing something. But that's the sort of pressure, like that moment felt 50 million times better than winning the 23s league because there was actual like real life pressure on it. So that was pretty surreal. Then I'd say playing for the US against France. That was the year they won the World Cup and it was just before we actually drew one all that game. But playing against France's first team, the likes of Griezmann, Mbappe, Giroud all playing that was like an awe-inspiring game as well. I, it felt like I was in a FIFA game in real life when I was stood next to them in the tunnel. Um, even got Griezmann's shirt after the game. That's a lovely little souvenir. <laughs> and then signing for Wigan is probably one of my highlights because it was my it's my first transfer. Like it was a, like the first time I'd been, you know, bought by a club and things like that. It's just another milestone that I've set. And now, hopefully, it's looking forward to the summer if I end up doing well enough to get another move or if it's January or whenever it is that I get a big move and I get to hopefully play top flight football. That's the next milestone I'm hoping to achieve. I've got all the confidence in the world that you'll get there. Who is the best player you've played with so far in your career? Who's one player you come across and scratch your head thinking, how can someone be that good? Uh, Reese James. Uh, the lad who plays for Chelsea. I don't know how much, 
Are you a big football fan, Sol? I've never really asked you that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, don't worry. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big football fan. I'm a United fan, but yeah, I follow football religiously, honestly. Okay, so you obviously earn, you know who Jamo is, but when he, he came to Wigan at, I'm pretty sure he was 19, 18 or 19, and it was it, it was his first loan um, in the championship, so obviously I kind of related to that because my first loan was the championship the year before. And he was just this quiet, unassuming lad in the changing room. Didn't really talk to many people. But actually, the first time when I'd actually he signed before me, and when I actually signed, I remember he messaged me on Instagram and he said, uh, "Let me know when you've like settled in, and we'll go for a coffee or something." And I was like, "This kid's 18. <laughs> he's like trying to settle me into a team that he's not even part of. That's unbelievable. Like, it's honest, one of the nicest like outgoing things I've ever seen anyone do." Then we fast forward to the first game we played together. And he just absolutely bosses the game. Like, he's built like a man at the age of 18, 19. Um, like, he's proper, properly got the attributes to be a footballer. And every he's got everything. He's strong, fast, good on the ball, unbelievable at defending. He's just got everything. And then we heavily relied on him to stay up that year as well. So the pressure of, you know, putting a kid who's its first time in first team football... And we're looking at him to, you know, be the one to dig us out of the league when we're not doing well. It was in- amazing. So the fact he's gone on uh, to Chelsea now and he's starting to make his way there, I've got all the confidence that he's just going to be a top, top right back in the world. I've kept up with um, Rhys James. He is, I do agree with you that he's a top, top player and I'm sure he's got a, a bright future ahead of him. One topic I wanted to discuss with you, there have been well-played footballers who have retired and obviously left the game after earning huge, huge sums of money and end up in financial difficulties. So what I wanted to ask you as a, as a young player in the game, like how are you learning about money and investing to protect your future beyond, you know, beyond the sport? That's a, a really good question. That's something my dad's always kept on at me at, that saying you, you want to make sure that you're set up after football, that if you don't want to, you never have to work again. Now, I'm... I don't know what I'm going to want to do when I finish my career, but I'm going to want to do something. I'm, I'm going to in me to just sit around and do nothing for weeks on end. So, some something I'm going to end up doing one day. But for now, the first thing I thought of is what's like the biggest thing that people struggle with when it comes to money. It was to me, it stuck out as being a mortgage. So as soon as I got like a decent amount of money, I've bought a house outright so no matter what happens in football I thought I could break my legs tomorrow and I've got a house paid off uh, and I thought that's the biggest thing that I can get out the way so there's that then there's trying to invest my money so that's not really something I've been taught about growing up but luckily my dad who's been a football coach he's met a lot of people he knows um, he knows an accountant who like I speak to quite a lot and he knows like the people I can go to to invest my money with. So I, he always just taught me like, you don't want to live your life just, you know, counting your money and like trying to save every penny and not enjoying yourself. Like, obviously you're earning your money to spend it and enjoy yourself. So like, I save as much of my money as I can without, you know, just like if some of the lads are like, do you want to go for a meal? I'm not going to be like, no, nah, I'm saving me money. I'll go out with them, but I don't, I just don't, I'm not one to live beyond my means. And I feel like that's the tricky thing when with some lads in football, they get a decent wage and they think they're going to be on it till they're 65, but they're only going to be on it till they're 32. So that afterlife, when you get that sort of lifestyle and, you know, you're driving Range Rovers, you're living in, you know, five bedroom mansions and things like that. It's, hard, it's very hard to sustain. And I'm just quite lucky that I'm, once I'm humble enough, but I come from a background where, I'm not like a very flashy guy. I don't need a massive house. I don't need the best car. So when it comes, I'm not going to be living beyond my means. I've already got a house that's paid off. If I end up getting a better house because I come into a bit more money, great. I'll, I can do that. But I'm always going to be settled with, like, happy with what I've got. I don't need like to have the best of everyone. So I'd say that's the best thing. It's just don't live beyond your means, really. Whilst we're on this subject as well, a bit more of a funny question. What's the first thing you bought when you got your first big paycheck, like a splurge purchase, not like a house or anything more like sensible? What's like a ridiculous thing you bought for yourself? I remember, <laughs> I remember when we first got paid our scholarship wage. So I was still I was still in school. I was in the last like month of school. 
And so I was like 16, just got paid my first scholar wage, which was like, we ended up getting um, taxed wrong. So we even got paid less. So I got like 400 quid for the month. But I was still so excited to spend my wage. I, the first thing I bought, I went to Foot Locker and bought a pair of Harachis. Literally remember the exact pair of shoes they were. They were when I look back at them now, they were rubbish. They were like blue and silver. But like I had my eye on them for ages and I got them. Then I can't think of any and I've ever like splurged my money on. I might have went on like a shopping spree and got some holiday money. I'd say the biggest thing I spent my money on when I was young, I had a decent bit of money, was uh, going to Thailand on holiday with my friends which you don't have to spend a lot of money out there, but I ended up spending a lot because I crashed the jet ski. So oh, wow. I was like a grand and a half down from crashing, breaking two jet skis. But yeah, now with the Hirachis, I was laughing because I remember, I even remember the days when they were like the trainer, but you're right. You look back on that shoe and you go, what was anyone thinking wearing those shoes? But here <laughs> yeah. we are anyway. And I was literally just, they were the new Nike shoe and I, I thought, oh, they're unbelievable. Now I look back and they were terrible. And also another subject I wanted to pick you on is racism in football. So how has it affected your career thus far? And and how do you see, you know, the situation improving? Because obviously you're a player and you're right in the in the heart of it. So uh, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting one. That. So me personally, obviously I'm aware there's racism in football, like on a higher stage, but me, I've, personally can't remember being affected by it whether for all i know growing up in the academy maybe there was times i didn't get picked because the coach preferred a white lad over a black lad that's something i don't know like i i've never even thought to think of it but i know it's a real issue in football especially because people get so emotional over football and when people are emotional their ignorance comes out and they just start saying things not even that they don't mean but it's just there in the head and they need to get their anger out, so they want to say the most hurtful thing they can, and it's just—it's just really stupid to me. But like knowing lads, like say like Raheem Sterling getting like monkey chants and things when he plays international football and stuff, I'm assuming obviously that's going to affect their mindset. Me personally, and it's things like when you go to Millwall. When I first went to play against Millwall, I remember this was on loan with Bolton, and my assistant manager said to me. Um, have you ever played here before? I was like, no. And he went, well, be careful when you're warming up because they're going to like probably call you like a monkey and things like that. And I started laughing and he went, no, I'm being deadly serious here. And I was like, oh, so that's just, it's just that blatant, is it? That that's what's going on. Um, I don't know what it's going to take for it to change necessarily. I think when it's blatant that people do things, they should get really serious bans. Like you can get banned for, you know, for things in football, like people take bans more seriously. Like players who get racial abuse offences, they can get fined more for that than say doing other things that aren't as important. They can. I'm trying to think now of cases where people have been racist in football and they've got a small fine compared to people who've like say tweeted something and got a massive fine. Like you've got they've got to prioritise what's more important and what's more offensive, but. At the minute, you know, with this Black Lives Matter movement going on and like the players take taking a knee on on the pitch before games and things like that, just to show the solidarity, you do realise there's there is a massive togetherness in football. It's just like the very very few that need sorting out. Yeah, and I love that you mentioned the um, the tweet situation because I, I I was actually saying this to someone recently. I think there's such a disparity between players getting caught for tweeting something in the past that obviously is deemed uh, racist which most of the comments are but then you see some of the punishment that's given to fans who are racist and you go it as you said it doesn't really add up why would you you're charging someone thousands of thousand pounds for 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 tweeting this but then a guy in the ground as you said who's overtly racist gets a slap on the wrist i think i do agree with you that i think in the game there just needs to be real real sanctions you know and tougher punishment for things like that because i think if you set the tone and set the example and start giving out lifetime bans and real real heavy repercussions i think a lot of these people will refrain from this behavior but at the moment you know raheem sterling these guys go into different countries and there's monkey chance there's this because people know they can do that and 
it's almost accepted weirdly in society. It's like people just go, oh, did you see the racism Raheem Sterling faced? It was really bad. But it's like no one has the the empathy or compassion to go, that's a major issue. It's just kind of like we talk about it for a, for a day, for two, it's on Sky Sports and then, you know, tomorrow's another day. It's a, I do agree with you. It's a, very, it's a strange one. Yeah, it's a weird one as well because everyone knows it's there. It's just... It's. I don't think everyone has the answer of how you go about tackling it. I think there just needs to be a bit of continuity in how serious the punishments can be, like you said. All right, there's, the example I've got is after one of my games with um, Wigan, we played Bristol away, and uh, our right-back, Nathan Byrne, who's another mixed-race lad, scored scored in the 90th minute to equalise. Um, so obviously ruined Brist, like all the Bristol fans this afternoon. And when we got back on the coach, he had a racist DM off um, a Bristol fan like calling them all sorts and just like really horrible stuff. So he just screenshot he screenshotted it, put it on Twitter and was like, anyone know who this is? And the lad who was in question ended up handing himself in to the police and like saying, Oh sorry, I shouldn't have said that, whatever. And I'm pretty it, I don't think anything serious would happen to him. He probably would have paid a fine and been at the next game. So there's that side of it. And then you get the next side where the next day the press <laughs> post a picture, post a story saying that Nathan had been racially abused, but used my picture instead of Nathan's because they didn't know which one of us was which. And me and him oh my. me and him don't look alike. We're just both mixed race. He's shorter, darker. We look completely different people, but someone, it didn't get past the media team. And this was multiple news outlets like The Sun, people like that who we like using it. So even that side of it, it's just sloppy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a disgrace. You know what? And I'm glad you used that example because they the ha- same thing happened. Was it, I think, between like Stormzy and Lukaku. Yeah. It's happened so many different players where they use a picture and you go, guys, you work for a, for a multinational media company. These companies turn over hundreds of millions and you're telling me there's not one person who can check a photo to make sure that the name matches. It's Yeah, like you said, you you can say sloppy to a degree, but then to me, after a while, you almost go, first time, okay, I'll give you a pass. Second time, you're pushing it. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. It's intentional. Do you know what I mean? Like It's it's like anything in life. Once you can be compassionate and understand that people make mistakes, we're all human, twice, yeah. Anything beyond that is, yeah, you've got to start to scratch your head a bit and wonder what's what's really going on you know and these people are never as you said people aren't really held accountable enough for us to see change so until these things are highlighted and gone actually guys no no that picture you posted is the wrong person it's inappropriate and there's some sort of penalties involved with that it will it will continue yeah exactly Whilst we're we're getting closer to the um to the end, I wanted to ask you as well. I know I know you're you're happily settled uh, with your missus Darcy, and I just wanted to ask you how important it's been to having like a strong network around you during during difficult times. Obviously, being in a relationship, I'm sure is a is is a wonderful thing, and it helps during that time. Especially, how's that how's that helped you so far? Especially this year, where you know you've gone through this really difficult time. Well, I think when you when you go through your difficult times, that's when you find out who actually matters in your life. So, of course, my family have, have been there for me. They've been worried. They were worried sick, like when they, they found out there was something wrong with my health and things like that. Like, so the, my my dad didn't even want to tell my mum when my medical fell through what had happened. He just he just wanted to say that we couldn't agree on a fee or any just anything to not worry her. But obviously, it came to the point we had to, and um, it's just not, when you. Like, in my opinion, when you're doing anything, you need good people around you, like you said. So I've got a close-knit circle of good friends. Obviously, I socialise with many people, but there's only a few people that you consider friends in your life. Then I've got my girlfriend who I know supports me through everything. She's been really good at this. Like, we we both, like, just bring the best out of each other. And she really, like, believes in me when it comes to, like, playing and things like that. And she tries to motiv- help me keep motivated and stuff which is massive to me. You've got my whole family who like support me and, you know, big me up. They obviously see me in a very high light, even higher than I'll ever see myself. Um, But that gives you a little bit of drive as well because I'm pretty much doing it all for them. I only want to succeed to do well for me, my family, and, you know, that's pretty much my, that's my why in life. So I think it's massive to have people around you 
you know, Steve in a good direction. You learn from Young that if you're going to try and get into football, there's going to be lads who are going to try and get you to come out all the time and, you know, distract you and things like that. And they're not the type of people you want to be around. I'm, I'm lucky that I've never, you know, been around any people like that. My friends are just my friends. Like, they support me. They just like me for me. And, you know, it's really fortunate for me that I've got that network around me. I wanted to ask you also, do you have any hidden talents outside of football? I mean, I've seen you on the dance floor a few times. You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not a bad, uh, bad mover. You've got a couple of tricks, <laughs> couple of tricks in the lock. <laughs> oh, uh, you make honestly, I, I see you dancing. I felt like crouchy. I was like, yeah, me and Peter Crouch have got the similar moves. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to take a seat for this one. Oh, that's exactly how I feel when I go out to the US because, you know, all the American lads can dance, so they look at me and they just call me this big stiff idiot, like trying to move. So it's that's made me laugh that you said that. They all think I'm terrible. Hidden talents wise, what would I say is a talent? I'm pretty good at you know some basic gymnastics. Um, not a lot of people might know that, but just growing up, like I said, I had loads of energy. So when it came to that, um just learning to do all like loads of bat flicks and somersaults and things like that. Um, that's something I really enjoy. Football freestyle is another little hobby of mine. And from young, as soon if I seen something that impressed me, I always wanted to impersonate it. So I remember first seeing um, a freestyler and like seeing people on soccer and doing skill school and stuff. And I was like, well, I want to learn how to do that. So I'd go home, I'd put YouTube on, I'd watch freestylers, I'd learn the tricks and still to this day, I enjoy doing it. What else can I do? Trying to think now what's actually sound impressive. Uh, I can solve a Rubik's Cube in 40 seconds. 40, um, 40 seconds? That's a little that's, Yeah, one. that's pretty strong. Uh, I can't say I can match that. 40 seconds is yeah. rapid. That's Will Smith level, is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pursuit of happiness, too, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, <laughs> so there's that. Uh, I'm all right on the piano as well, actually. Uh, not, I can't like read chords or anything, but I've taught myself like a few songs that I like to play, like a few Coldplay things and stuff like that. That's pretty much it. And COD, love playing COD. I, I had to get rid of my consoles, man. They're too addictive. Like playing FIFA for hours on end. I was like, yeah, I got a lot, and I got a lot I need to do in life. So I got rid of every console I own. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I had to. Yeah, very time-consuming, isn't it? Yeah. And so, what, and what would you say? What's next for you? I, I know you spoke earlier about your your ambitions in the game. So talk a bit more about that. What's next for me is uh, we've got seven games left this season. So I'm literally just thinking of every game. I just want to get this season wrapped up. We're doing very well at the minute. So I want us to push on and finish as high as we can in the league and end it on a real high. And hopefully, like taking into account that I was going to move in January and performing well at the end of the season, um, I managed to get a move to another club because I'm really, I feel like I'm ready for a new challenge now of top flight football. So whether I have to, like, I end up getting a move to a Premier League team, hopefully, or I have to go abroad to the Bundesliga or La Liga, just any anything that's a new challenge and a new height that, like, I can test myself up because, like, my goal's always just been, I've not, I've never really had a set goal. Obviously, when I, I was young, you say, oh, I want to be the best footballer in the world and things like that. And, but growing up, I thought, I just want to reach the highest potential that I can. I don't know whether that's going to be this season. I don't know whether it's going to be in four years. I'm, I end up playing for a top five Premier League club. I don't know where it's going to take me. But if I get to a point where I feel like I'm at the highest point in my potential, I can retire happily then. I'm not going to. I'll go as long as I can. But that's sort of my aim. Would you? What's your a pre-game? Do you have a pre-game ritual? Are you superstitious? Is there are there any like things you do before every game? No, I'm I'm not really into rituals. Um, it's not really some. I feel like that's something you either get when you're young and you see someone else doing. You think, oh, I want to have a ritual, or it's just you do something different one day and you play well, so you think I'm going to stick to that. But I just. I pretty much prepare the same for every game. I don't have a ritual. I just eat the same meal at the same times, uh, do the same like pre like pre game warm ups and things. And I feel like a a routine is better than a superstitious ritual. Yeah, for sure. So who's the um? Are you are you the DJ in your locker room? What's the um? What songs are we listening to before the game? What's your top three? 
it's not me. It's um, it's a, a lad called Jamie Jones. He's he's DJ. Unfortunately, I feel like the more northern clubs, it's always it's always a house music scene. It's unfortunate for me. So I'm I'm gonna have to start taking my headphones in and listen to my own music because it doesn't really get me pumped up for games. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you've got to please the matters. So yeah, no, I hear that. But so, but what's in your if you had a choice before a game? To listen to some music give me top three songs you're listening to right now that are like your the songs that get you pumped top three songs to get me pumped you know what got my phone here i'm actually gonna find free on spotify quick yeah there's having my way by lil skies there's jid off d's with j cole and um i like man of the year by schoolboy q as well yeah, man of the year. To be fair, that that's also one of my gym songs. I, I've got a lot of time for that song. Yeah, it's fun. It's funny, you know, with like the schoolboy queue. I remember when I was supposed to be signing for Milan. Um, my dad said to me um, that Maldini wanted to call me, and I was at a concert with my brother. It was a schoolboy queue concert, so I said, "Can I ring him after it?" He said, "Yeah, that's fine." So when I got home, I've just like obviously I'm thinking right, I've got my move sorted here, so I'm just gonna have a fun night with my brother and then go home and sort all the details. Got home, I ring Maldini up. <laughs> Maldini says to me, "Oh, I heard you you were at a concert tonight. Where did you go?" <laughs> I actually told him that I was at a concert. I was thinking, oh, what a start <laughs> that is. Maldini's like, yeah, we're gonna have to change that when you get to Milan. But fair play though, I'm sure he he respects your talent. Yeah, no, he was he was cool about it to be fair. And um, so the closing question uh, for the podcast, as you know, it's called Can I Get a Picture? So our closing question is, who's the one person that inspires you that you'd love to have your picture taken with and why? Probably Michael Jordan. Yeah, I'd love to be able to pick his brains really quick and get a picture of him just, especially after seeing the last dance, I already knew how good he was as, like, as an athlete and things. But I, I related to a lot of things that he said in his podcast, you know, like with his competitiveness and his energy. And when you see yourself in someone, I think that's what makes you idolise them that much more. So, yeah, that's, that's my answer at the moment. Thanks again to Anthony for taking the time to chat with me. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Can I Get a Picture Pod, and we'll be back again next week with another episode. 